0: Hello, and welcome to TNBS, the Thursday Night Bible Study. This study was held on August 12, 2010. Tonight we're going to continue in our study of Romans, looking at the 7th chapter where Paul talks about the law. So welcome again. This is TNBS, Volume 2, Session 16. Okay, tonight we're going to pick it up in the 7th chapter of Romans, and with any luck we'll get through the 7th chapter tonight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's a wishful thinking I'm sure so uh, anyway alright now in the 6th chapter Paul was talking about uh, grace and sin and he used it to the imagery of slavery and how that we are used to be slaves to sin and we are no longer. We're now slaves to Christ. By our obedience to Christ, we're now slaves to Christ. And he used slavery, as I mentioned a couple weeks ago, because that would be something that would be familiar with the people in, at the church in Rome, since half the Roman Empire or half of, of Rome was supposed to be, uh, more than half was supposed to be slaves. So that was an, an imagery which they could grasp. Now, tonight, in the seventh chapter, Paul is going to go on and talk about the law and the relation of law to sin and, the, and, and, that, and how that affects us. And he's, again, going to use imagery which would be familiar with the folks. Now, of course, they're going to be familiar with law. Law would be something that the, that the Jewish Christians in the church at Rome would be quite familiar with as far as the Mosaic law. But the Gentile... Members of the church in Rome would also be very familiar with law because of the law of Rome and all their, their particular laws which they had and the, um, the penalties for, for disobeying those laws. So the, the term law would be something they'd be quite familiar with. And he starts off in the 7th chapter using, again, a familiar example of what he's trying to say. And he talks about marriage, which is obviously something that all the people would be familiar with. And that's where we pick it up in the 7th chapter. Or do you not know, brethren, for I am speaking to those who know the law, capital L being the Jews, or little l being the Gentiles. Okay? neither talking about Roman law or, or Jewish law or just law in general. For I am talking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives. All right? Now that may seem like kind of a duh statement. Once you're dead, I mean, you're not affected by any laws. But that's the point he's trying to make here. Okay? Verse 2. For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while she is living. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. So then, if while her husband is living she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, so that she is not an adulteress, although she is joined to another man. So what Paul is saying is, he said The law says that when you get married, you're married for life. So as long as you are alive... You, and married, then you have to stay with each other. And you cannot go associate or, or join yourself with somebody else. A woman cannot leave her husband and go marry somebody else if her husband is still alive because they are under the law of marriage. Do not know why he's only talking about the woman. I guess men would never leave their wives. I don't know. Um, But anyway, he does. So, he says, in fact, if a woman does leave her husband while he is still alive, while they're still under the law of marriage, and goes and marries another man, then she's an adulteress. She's in violation of the law. However, if her first husband dies, then she is no longer under the law of marriage. His death has freed her from that law. And she is now quite free to go join herself to another man and come under marriage to another man under the law of marriage again. Okay, Very simple illustration. It's something that people would relate to. Now, and now he's going to tie that into how the law and how us and how we relate to all of this. So, uh, looking over in uh, verse 4 of, that, of the 7th chapter. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we might bear fruit for God. Paul says, so it is with us. Since we have died to the law, we have died to sin, and now he's making the point that we have died to the law. Now, what he's talking about that is we have died to the consequences of disobeying the law. We have died to the requirement of, of obedience to the law to reach righteousness because he's already made the point that we can't do that, that you cannot gain righteousness through obedience. It can't be done. And he's already made the point, point that he's, and he's going to remake that point here, that the, what, the, what the law actually does is shows our sinfulness. So he says we have died to sin. We have died to the law. And we have died to the requirements of the law. And that is to be in obedience to gain righteousness. We have died to that with Christ, he says. Going back to the 6th chapter when he talks about in verse 3 and 4 of the 6th chapter where we have entered through Christ in baptism. Where Christ died and was resurrected to life. We have died with Christ and we are resurrected to new life. The old has passed away. We have died to sin. We have died to the requirements of the law. That's the point he's trying to make here just as Christ. Uh, We died to the law through the body of Christ. Okay? So, now, while we were joined to the law, our sinful desires were aroused and resulted in us bearing the fruit of death, which was sin. Look at verse 5. For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law, and he's going to get to more of that in just a minute, the sinful passions were aroused by the law, we at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. But now that we've been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter or oldness of the law. So, when we were joined to the law, our sinful desires were aroused and resulted in us bearing the fruit of that sin, which was death. But now we have been released, we have died to the law, and from having to earn our righteousness... So that now we can live by the Spirit. This produces the fruit of the Spirit which results in righteousness, which results in sanctification, which results in eternal life. This is what he spelled out in the 6th chapter. Okay? So he says, Just as the woman whose husband dies and she's no longer under the, the, the law of marriage and she is now free to go join herself to someone else, so we, having died to the law, can now go join ourselves to someone else, and that's Jesus Christ. And so we're no longer bearing the fruit of the law, which was failure to obey the law, which was sin, which was unrighteousness, which was death. We can now be joined into Christ and bear the fruit of the Spirit, which is righteousness and sanctification and justification and all that. So, that's the point he's making. So now he's "Look at the end of verse 6. So, um, so we are now bound in newness of the Spirit and not in oldness of the letter. Now, he's going to go into the next in these next few verses, uh, in the rest of the 7th chapter, and he's going to be making two basic points. In verses 7 through 13, he's going to be talking about the value of the law, because he just said we're through with the old, the old stuff. We're now living in the spirit. We're not living by the old letter. And he's afraid that the Jews will then say, well, then the law is not important. It has no value. No, Paul said, no, no, the law does have value. And this is the point he's going to be making in the next uh, verses 7 through 13. Then in verses 14 through 23, Paul is going to be talking about this conflict which the relation between law and sin and us has created in us, has created in him, and he's going to be talking in the first person. Uh, in the first part of this, when he's, when he's talking about the value of the law, he's talking in the first person. And there's been some argument about, okay, is Paul talking about himself, or is he talking about man in general, like he did back in the, in the fifth chapter when he talked about Adam, or, you know, what is he talking about? Well, I think we're just going to take it as Paul just talking about himself. There's some phrases in here which he uses which some people say, well, that really doesn't sound like Paul. But I think the point he's trying to make here just comes across better when he speaks in the first person. Okay? So, now he's going to be talking about the value of the law. He's going to talk about five values of the law, five things that the law uh, does for us or provides for us or, or shows us or reveals to us. Okay? So looking at verse 7, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? So is the law just is it sinful? I told you we're not living by the old law. We're now living by grace. We're living by the Spirit. Does that mean the old law was sinful? And Paul said, no, no, no. May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to no sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Okay? So, Although he says the first value of the law is that it identifies sin in our lives. That's one of the values of the law. It identifies sin in our life. Now, although Paul may have coveted before he came to know the law, since he's using this illustration of coveting here, he said he may have coveted before he came to the law, but now that he knows the law, that coveting is wrong because of the law. I mean the law has revealed this as a sin to him. And this is basically what he said. And he's made this point previously, too, when he's talking about the law reveals sin in their lives. Now that we have the law, now that we know what God desires and what God's, if you want to call them, this, rules are, and we see that we're not obeying those rules, we know that that's sin. That if you disobey them, that's sinful. Because we now know what is not sinful or what is sinful. So he said that's one of the values of the law that it actually reveals sin. Another thing that the law does is it Oh, we ready for this? <laughs> it reveals the human proclivity to sin. That's a good SAT word. Proclivity. Or, in other words, we are prone to sin. Look at verse 8. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind, from apart from the law, sin is dead. He says, I didn't know coveting was a sin until the law came across, and it. now I know that coveting is a sin. He says, but what the law has done, and he's going to go on more to, to expand on this, he says, the law has made me realize that coveting is what I desire to do. It, it's, it's, it's kind of revealed the fact that my nature is, is kind of bent towards sin, the proclivity of the, of the human to sin or, or that we're prone to sin. It seems like all we need to know is that something is off limits and suddenly we want to embrace it. You know? That's kind of like a lot of like, like human nature. Uh, it, you know, you can't have this. Well, that's quite often what our human nature wants. <laughs> Go back to the Garden of Eden. Would Eve ever desired the fruit off the tree of knowledge of good and evil if God had said, you can't have it? Did that increase the desire in her for it? Because he said, you can't? I don't know. But it just shows what Paul, Paul is saying here. so the law just kind of reveals... First of all, identifies sin. It defines sin. But it also shows us that since we look at these things that that are now defined as sin, we realize those are things that we desire. Our human nature desires those things. It, it, It shows the sinfulness of the human nature. It reveals that. In fact, the glory of God's character revealed in His law is our own undoing, actually. Because through the law, we see the righteousness of God, and we more clearly see our unrighteousness. This is what the law was doing. The law reveals the righteousness of God. And then when we looked at the law and we look at the practice of our lives, we realize that's righteousness. What does the scripture say about our righteousness? Compared to it. It's filthy rags. So that's one of the advantages. That's one of the things the law does. It reveals to us our unrighteousness compared to God's righteousness. Proclivity. That means tendency toward, doesn't it? Oh, that sounds good. Our tendency towards sin is one of the things that the law does. Okay. The third value of the law is that it reveals death. Look at verses ten and eleven. But we didn't read nine. But that kind of goes with eight. But let's go going back and look at verse eight. But sin taking the opportunity through the commandment produced in me coveting to every kind. From apart the law, the law of sin is dead. And I was once alive from the law, but when the commandment became sin. Sin became alive, and I died. and the commandment which was to result in life proved to result in death for me. For sin taken opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it it killed me. I mean, the law was given to show us the way that we should live, the way that, to life.? Okay? But because sin used it to deceive us and to tempt us, it has resulted in our death. OK? So originally original law was, was given to show us how we should live. But as a result, sin has now taken that law, and through our sinful nature and through temptation to break those laws, it has now resulted in our actual death. By yielding to the deceitfulness of sin, it has resulted in our death, because the wages of sin is death. Alright? It's interesting to note that it is is the very result. It's this fact that due to the, the, the temptation of sin to break the laws, and we yield to that temptation has resulted in our death, but it is that very result that has led us to realize our need for forgiveness, which leads us to Christ. So that's another thing that the law has done: it has revealed the fact that we that sin has, has produced death in us, and and that we need forgiveness and we need Christ because of the sin that is in our lives. If the law did not tell us not to covet then when I coveted it would not have become a sin and I would not have to pay the price for death but since the law did tell us then we must pay the sin so it has revealed the death that sin has caused in our lives here's the third thing he says the law has done the fourth thing the law does it reveals the nature of the law giver look at verse 12 so then the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good What the law does is it reveals the nature of the lawgiver. It reveals the nature of God. Because the law comes from a holy, righteous, and good God, then the law itself is holy, righteous, and good. Okay? Is it sin? Paul says no, no, no. It comes from a holy, righteous, and good God. The law itself is holy, righteous, and good. The law is. It reveals the nature of God. Now, just kind of a sidebar here. I've heard um, not as much recently, I guess, but I used to hear a lot from students that, that, you know, the Bible is just so full of all these don'ts and do's and don'ts and all these laws that we're supposed to buy and all the things God tells us we shall, thou shalt not, and thou shalt not, and thou shalt not. And it kind of goes back to what Paul is talking about here. Those usually are the things that we desire to do. And so when the Bible tells you, no, don't do that, then people have a tendency to get a little upset about it, you know, because that's what they want to do. You know. I heard a statement one time, and... Don't think I've ever really found it to be false, but if you look in the Bible at anything, any law—have you want to have you want to phrase law? Any law, commandment, edict, or whatever from God. If you look at anything that He tells us to do, or that He tells us that we should not do, and you really look at what He's saying, God normally—I shouldn't say well, maybe always. I'm trying to think. I, I don't think I've ever found a. An exception to this. Every commandment of God, to either do or, or to not do, is always given for one of two reasons to either protect us from something or to provide something for us. Now stop and think about it. Think about one of the, the thou shalt nots. Any one of them, just name one. Thou shalt not kill. Would that protect us from something? Or provide something for us any commandment of god it 's given to either protect us from something or to provide something for us. thou shalt not kill protect us from the penalty of killing or protects us from retaliation for killing I guess I don't know so but and the whole point i 'm making there is that so many times people think that the whole reason God gives laws and commandments and, and edicts and it's just to make us miserable. You know? And that's not why God does it. The Bible says thou shalt not because that's what's best for us. Not because some God just wants to take away our happiness which so many people think because in our sinful nature we desire to do that thing and we think that will be happy. We're going to get to that and that's the fifth thing that uh, uh, the law does. It reveals the, the, the sin's nature. Uh, we, and we find out that Sin is a lie. But when we look at it, we think, hey, that looks like fun. I will find happiness in doing that. I will find fulfillment in doing that. I will find joy in doing that. But God says don't, so he's a killjoy. No, he's telling us don't for a reason. And it's not to make us miserable. It's not to make us unhappy. It's not to take away our joy. It's to protect us or to provide for us because he's doing it out of love he's not doing it out of spite he's not doing it just because he can do it he's God he does it out of love remember the brown puppy those of y'all who have been at youth camp you know that's why he does that that's why he tells us thou shalt not that's why he tells us thou shalt it's done out of love okay End of sidebar. Back to Romans. <laughs> All right, huh? I kind of like the sidebar too, David. I really do. Where am I? The law reveals the nature of the lawgiver. Okay, the fifth, the fifth one. The fifth one. The, value, the fifth value of the law. Verse thirteen. Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be. Rather, it was sin, in order that it might be shown to be sin. By affecting my death through that which is good, that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. Now, I told you all Paul has a tendency to get a little confusing at times. Paul has a tendency just to just kind of just roll these things off his tongue here, uh, like last week we talked about the fact what was that verse what was the word he used, Rob? We talked about that when we were talking um, reconciliation he used like reconciliation like like six or eight times in three verses, you know. Uh, he who was reconciled received reconciliation and was reconciled unto the reconciliation that he received through reconciliation. You know, And it can be confusing. Like I told you off the very beginning, this is Paul's treatise on theology. This is his theology. He's spelling it out for the church at Rome. And sometimes it can be a little confusing uh, when you look at the wording and the phrasing of it because we are not reading modern-day English. Okay? So, anyway... What is he saying here? The fifth value of the law is that it reveals the utter sinfulness of sin. Greek word for utter there, the utter, the utter, utter, u d d e r. You get milk out of it. No, the, the utter, the utter sinfulness of sin. The Greek word is epoboline, which if you don't pronounce it the way it's supposed to be pronounced, it and you pronounce it the way that. The Latin pronunciation is it's, it's hyperbole or hyperbole. exactly. That's where we get the, Greek word, the English word hyperbole from. In other words, it's the utterness, it's the exaggeration. It's the, it's the ultimate of sin. And what Paul is saying is what the law does, it shows you the true nature of sin. It's what it does. It reveals the utter sinfulness of sin. It shows you the true nature of sin. It shows you that all the promises of sin are lies. For example, the promise to satisfy our desires more than last time. You have been tempted to do something because you had a desire to do it and you did it. And then you were tempted to do it again. And that desire had to kind of the, the background saying this time is going to be better than last time. Or I will enjoy it more than last time. It's a lie. It, the law reveals the utter sinfulness of sin. The the lies of sin. Satisfy our desires more than before. Our actions can be kept hidden. No one will know. That's a good lie. Uh, We can gain some kind of special benefit from yielding to sin, either wisdom or knowledge or sophistication or something. That's another good lie of sin. We will gain power and prestige in exchange for cooperation it reveals the utter sinfulness of sin because it states the righteousness of God. All of these are lies. Re- the law helps reveal the true nature of sin. That's the fifth point he's making here. The hyperbole of sin. or <laughs> well, the epaboline, as the Greeks would say. Okay. Now, in these next few verses, 14 through 23, Paul's going to be talking about this battle that is waging within him. He now turns to the battle that he, that, that he constantly is fighting between the two natures. The, the sin nature identified by the law and his spiritual nature. In other words, how can we be dead to sin but still do wrong? In Christ, we are free from the penalty of sin and the power of sin But while still in the flesh, we are not free from the presence of sin and the possibilities of sin. This is the point he's making here. We have been freed from the control of sin, but not from the contest with sin. I kind of like that phrase. I read that in one of the the, um, commentaries I was reading. We are freed from the control of sin, but not from the contest with sin. And Paul goes through these in these verses where, more than once, he talks about this fact. In our lives, as in Paul's, we're much more acquainted with the reality of sin than we are with the righteous standard of the law. Basically, is what he's saying, because of our sinful natures. He talks about the consequence, this constant conflict he feels between what he knows he should do and what he does. This battle between his sinful nature and his new formed spiritual life in Christ. The same battle which I'm fighting every day. And I don't think it's anything too unique to me either. I mean, this is, you know, this is what you're fighting too. <coughs> this battle we constantly, we constantly have between our sinful nature and this new spiritual life that we have in Christ. Several times he makes the point that the good that he desires to do, he doesn't do it. But the sin he doesn't want to do, that he does. All right. Look at verse 15. For that which I am doing I do not understand, for I am not practicing that which I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. Look at verse 19. For the good that I wish I do not do, but I practice the very th- the evil that I do not wish to do. Okay? You see this conflict, what he's describing here? He says, My mind tells me I should obey the law. My sinful nature, and he uses mind and body here is to, is to compare the two. It's like, you, like his body has a mind of his own. It doesn't, obviously. But he's basically saying, my mind desires to serve God. But my body still desires to serve sin. He says, "And my mind, I want to do this. But I don't do that. I do what my body wants to do. I do sin. But I don't want to do sin. But that's what I do. And he says, there's this constant turmoil and conflict he's in. Look over in Galatians in the 5th chapter. 5th chapter of Galatians, he spells it out again too. 5th chapter of Galatians should mean something else to your mind. What is it? Fruit of the Spirit. Fruit of the Spirit. Very good. And the 17th verse of the 5th chapter is just a verse or two before we talk about the fruits of the Spirit. Uh, let's go back to the 5th chapter of Galatians look at verse, well, let's start with 16. But I say, Paul speaking, but I say walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. Alright? What does he say over in uh, Romans? Um, For the thing which I am doing I do not understand for I am not practicing what I would like to do. He says, but if you walk by the Spirit you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. Verse 17 of Galatians 5 For the flesh sets its desires against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. Here again he's stating that same battle that he's facing back and forth. Between his his sinful nature and his spiritual nature. His sinful desires and his spiritual desires. This battle which is constantly going on. Verse 18, but if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Why? Because we're dead to the law and the requirements of the law. Because we're now alive in Christ. But we still have that sinful nature with us. We're still in the flesh. You know, we're not living in the Spirit. We still have flesh. And as long as we have this flesh, we're going to be in this battle between what our spirit desires to do in living in Christ and what our sinful nature desires to do, yielding to sin. And then he goes on in verse 19 through 23 and talks about the the deeds of the flesh and and the fruit of the spirit. So, this is this battle that he's in. So. Oh wretched man that he is. Look at verse 24. The, going back to Romans now. I'm sorry, back to Romans 7, 724. Wretched man that I am. He said, Wretched. I He says, I'm in constant turmoil here. My mind says, I want to do this. My body does, you know, my I then I yield in the sin and do something else. And I say, I don't want to do that. That is wrong, but yet that's what I wind up doing. Wretched man that I How in the world, Paul is saying here. I cannot solve this myself. Who will set me free from this? Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Verse 24 of the 7th chapter of Romans. He says, I'm battling this thing, guys. I'm not succeeding in this battle. Who's going to set me free? Set me free. The Greek word there is uh, rumina. To set free. You ready for this? It literally means... (laughs) It literally means to drag through the dirt. Okay? Um, (laughs) But in in a sense of like you're holding on to a rope and somebody is dragging you through the dirt, but that's the literal meaning, but the the more figurative meaning is that, that they are pulling you away from something, out of something. They're delivering you from something. Okay, that's what that when he talks about set be free, that's what it means. But it's kind of unique that it's not that like they have got the other end of the rope and they're running away, dragging you away from this thing. He says, Who's going to set me free? And the word he used there is, Who's going to grab the rope and pull me toward them? Is what it literally means. Who's going to drag me toward them? Drag me out of this body of sin that I'm in? Who's going to do that? Now, Everywhere else, this Greek word in the New Testament is, just, is translated almost everywhere else as deliver. Set me free is the only place, it's only here in Romans that that is used there. Most other places it says, I think NIV even says set me free, doesn't it? Rescue. Rescue, okay. Rescue, deliver. Set me free. Drag me out of this. But not just drag me out of this, drag me toward something. Who's going to do that? And of course he answers it in verse 25. Thanks be to God. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Because that's who is going to drag him free of this. That's who's going to set him free. Is the strength and the power that he has in God. Thanks be to God, who through Christ has provided the way of escape. It is by realizing, excuse me, it is by relying on the strength and power of God. A power that raised Christ from the dead and conquered death forever. That power. It is by relying on that power that we can fight against the deceitfulness the temptation of sin. That is who's going to rescue him. That is who's going to drag him toward. Drag him out of this, but it's going to drag him toward Christ. God is going to do that. That's how he's going to get, be conquered. That's, that's how he's going to survive this conflict that he has. The way of escape. That sound familiar? God will provide a means of escape. First Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you, but such is common to man. And God is faithful and will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the the temptation will provide a means of escape that you may bear up under it. It is God that's going to do this. We do this in His strength, guys. We don't do it on our own. We don't do it on our own strength. Paul could not do it on his own strength. That's what he came to realize. One of the things the law pointed out to him, pointed out that he was sinning, it pointed out that he was sinful; his nature was sinful. He had this desire to do sinful things. He had the desire to do the things which the law said was wrong, and he could not overcome this by himself. The person that was going to free him from this conflict, this battle, to make him successful, to make him conquerors over this battle, was God. Through Jesus Christ, that who is setting, that's who is setting him free. He has died to sin. He has died to the law. He is now free in Christ. And that's the freedom we have in Christ. But it's in His strength and His power. Ephesians 6, 10, 11, 12, 13, all the way through 17. Stand in His strength. His stimmy, right, Will? <laughs> his stimmy. In His strength. So we have a way of escape by relying upon God and His power. We can fight against the deceitfulness and the temptations of sin. And thanks be to God. Verse 25, thanks be to God. The Greek word there is actually charis, grace. Going back to God's grace. It is God's grace. Because of God's grace, we thanks be to God who through the sacrifice of His Son, Jesus, we can be forgiven, Declared righteous, be justified when we yield to sin. Now it is through Jesus Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection that we enter this relationship with with God. We have this new, we have a peace with God, Romans 5. We have a new position with God to where he is now our Father, we are his child. Through Jesus Christ. And we have available to us his power and his strength. And thanks be to God that we have that power and strength. That's how we can resist the temptations, the deceitfulness of sin. Sin has taken what is good and holy and righteous, the law of God, and has perverted it into sin by tempting us to break those laws, to go against that law, to sin. And we can defeat that and fight that and resist that through the power that we have through our relationship to God Almighty through Jesus Christ. But when we do fail, when we do yield, when we do sin, when our nature, our sin nature, does succeed, when we do the things that we don't want to do, then because of our relationship to God through Jesus Christ, because that we have been buried with Christ in baptism, to the sin and the consequences of sin and to the law and the requirements of the law we can now rise to walk in newness of life we have been justified by God declared not guilty we have been made righteous by God and we are forgiven we have his power to fight the temptation of sin we have his his grace that forgives us Will you fail then give in to sin by faith in Christ. This is what Paul is talking about, and actually, probably remember the original scriptures didn't have chapter divisions. You probably should just read right on in chapter eight because at this point, Paul has talked about a oh, wretched man that I am who's going to who's going to drag me away from this. And then he says, then therefore, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So he's going to go right on in and talk about the grace that we have in God in chapter 8. We'll pick that up next time. Pray with me. Father God, God, I just thank you. I just thank you, thank you, thank you, Father for the wonder, for the, for the indescribable relationship that we have because of Christ. Father, I thank you that we're no longer under the penalty of the law. We don't have to earn our righteousness. We don't have to earn your love. We don't have to earn your grace because, Father, we couldn't do it. We just could not do it. I thank you, Father, that because of your love and by your grace, we have, through Christ and our faith in him, this relationship that we can call upon your power to fight off temptation. And we can call upon your grace for forgiveness. Father, thank you that you will not allow us to be tempted beyond what we can resist with you. But, oh, God, thank you that you forgive us when we yield. Father, help us to live in the power and the strength of our God and to walk yielding to the Spirit not to our flesh for this is my prayer in and through the name of Jesus Christ your Son my Savior and my Lord and my very bestest friend Amen and amen this is David Keel and I want to thank you for joining us tonight and as always, if you do ever have any questions or comments or suggestions for the study, please send me an email. My address is david l keel at gmail.com So I hope you'll be able to join us next week when we start our study in the eighth chapter of Romans. till then, as always, I'll be praying for you. And praying that we both may be able to walk in the strength and the power of the Spirit. God bless.